So we've got two readings today. The first is Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 18. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And our second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13, so the whole chapter. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So, when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, in that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Thank you, Hannah, for bringing the Bible reading to us. And um, please do keep your Bibles um, open. If you're using a phone app, then uh, have that in sight as we uh, look at these passages. There are going to be a few other verses as well that I uh, mentioned, which I'll, um, we'll, we'll have on the screen. Um, and if uh, I have printed up, uh, just if English isn't your first language, or I know I can speak very quickly and not necessarily as clear as I should be. Um, I do have some sermon scripts uh, available at the front as well if you'd like to pick one of those up um, at the end if there are things that you want to revisit or look through. But um, we're coming to... It's a, this series on the church is providing an opportunity for us to consider and look at elements of what it means to be God's family in ways that we probably don't reflect on. Um, discipline is one of those subjects that you don't often see on the church preaching calendar. But actually, it is a way as church family of being able to say, actually, what has Jesus given to us? What does he expect of us as his family? How do we 
live together in a way that is distinctive and open. And I pray, and please do pray, that as we look at these passages, that actually as we've been singing, we come as people covered by grace, people dependent on a saviour whose blood is precious and powerful enough to make the vilest sinner clean before God. That is the tone. That's, that's where we're our starting point and end point. And I want you to remember that as we think and look into this issue of church discipline, a church family that's helping each other live for Christ. Well, the crowds, the pageantry, the celebration and joy, the streets were packed Now, I'm not talking about uh, King Charles III's coronation, a different coronation that happened this week, Wrexham FC, crowned champions of the National League, promoted to the English Football League, the second um, league, League Two, after an absence of 15 years. Wrexham have never known it to be so good. And I think the two American film stars who have uh, put so much passion and energy were also over the moon with this. But you think about in that football club, and if some of you have watched the Disney Plus um, series on it, it's fascinating behind the scenes of the club in Wrexham. The sweat, the tears, the sleepless nights, the coaching, the drills, the number-crunching deals, all of this work, all of this effort that's been invested over the past two seasons at least to see Wrexham promoted. Just think of how much that has yielded now, the fruit that's come of all that hard work of these uh, two wonderful American guys who've just got a heart to see not just the football club, but the town rejuvenated, uh, to be able to enjoy some celebration and what they've put in as well. But not just them, the, the attention to detail, the discipline of the, the staff, the, the discipline of the fans. They give so much to this club, the commitment and what has been achieved. You see, discipline is the backbone of sporting success. But then in other areas, we see the same thing. Interestingly, in, in 2000, so 23 years ago, Julie Andrews was made a dame by Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, This is Julie Andrews, who won an Oscar for her role as Mary Poppins, a Golden Globe for her Maria von Trapp in The Sound of Music, a film that I'm proud to say I've never watched all the way through and don't intend to. Even though, I'm sure, it is a wonderful piece of artistry to those who love musicals. In an interview, when she was asked about the damehood, she said this, I've never minded being disciplined. I'd always rather have a quiet evening than go out to a wild party. Uh, Discipline for me has always been the foundation which leaves me free to fly. Discipline leads me free to fly. It brings freedom. It creates great art. It achieves outstanding sporting records. Discipline is behind global business successes. Well, what about your life? Where has discipline shaped you? Where has it paid off? What are the the chapters or the markers that as you look back on on the last few years, what have been those places of correction and formation and discipline that have helped you? The writer and pastor R. Kent Hughes puts it like this, we will never get anywhere in life without discipline. This is doubly so in spiritual matters. No discipline, no discipleship. 
You can hear it there as the words are put together. They're from the same root word, discipleship and discipline. So why bother? Why bother with discipline? And um, as we, we have this sermon series, as we're looking at discipline, I can hear and feel, feel it myself that speaking about this on a Sunday, surely this is going to put people off church. But it shouldn't. Discipline shouldn't put us off. Especially if we keep in mind these two big goals. Again, this is what I want you to hold on to as we're going through this. Firstly, the pastor writing to encourage the Christians in Rome facing tough times put it this way in Hebrews 12. And I think hopefully we've got that text there that um, will come up. Hebrews 12. For they, our dads, our parents, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Training or disciplining yourself in godliness is going to be tough. Tougher than the shuttle runs or learning musical scales for an exam or vocab for that language test. And it's going to be a great investment, though. It is a blessing that doesn't fade or waste away like our fitness levels or muscle strength or memory recall on um, certain maths equations or whatever it is. It won't fade away because it leads to eternal life. And the second big motivation for discipline is love. As the pastor continues um, in verse 6 of chapter 12, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. You see, churches must practice discipline for the sake of loving each other. The believer caught in sin so that he or she would come to repentance, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 5. It's loving to other Christians so that they won't be astray. It's loving to non-Christian neighbors so that they aren't put off by hypocrisy and the bad witness of disobedient Christians. Ultimately, for the sake of loving Christ, that his name might be protected and honored. Love is at the heart of discipline. Their discipline is a good gift from God. Whether we're talking about formative discipline, so that is in the everyday stuff, the sort of disciplines you have, there's as important as it is getting up, making the bed, um, having a routine to your work lives, the discipline of study for exams. The way in which in the everyday you might get teaching or instruction or someone picks you up on stuff which then helps you, corrects you. It's that nudge in the right direction. The regular and ordinary way to help Christ-like behavior. Or in corrective discipline, which we'll look at, which is more the formal intervention from church leadership where it's needed because someone stubbornly refuses to stop sinning. Both forms, the formative and the corrective, are good gifts from God because God loves us too much not to discipline, not to discipline us. He loves us too much. Julie Andrews said that discipline leaves me free to fly. Well, God's discipline leads us to eternal life, leads to freedom in his love, leads to freedom to grow us to be like Christ. Well then, what does church discipline involve? And again, if you've got your passage in Matthew 18 open on page 985 of the church Bibles that we use, let's just have a look at that passage again. 
If your brother or sister sins, the footnote there says sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. So you could call that the sort of formative discipline that I was talking about, the everyday correction. You've gone to them, you've spoken about an issue, there's been repentance, there's change, they've taken it on board, excellent, we can, we can move on and progress. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the ch- church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Fascinating teaching here from Jesus that he seems, first off, to have two priorities and one assumption. The first priority that their sinner repents. That's the first priority, that the sinner repents. That's the aim, is to stop doing the sin and start doing the right thing. And then the second priority, that the number of people involved in the process, in this corrective process, is kept as small as necessary to bring about that repentance. It isn't supposed to be a massive deal or a a focus of gossip or uh, just bringing in heavy-handed ways of operating, but uh, it's gentle, it's pastoral. It's proportionate. And the one obvious assumption is that the church, that is the professing baptized Christians committed to a local community of believers, should care about helping each other grow in holiness. They should care and not tolerate sin. That's the the obvious assumption in why Jesus is teaching this. And all of this is fueled by Jesus' conviction from the Sermon on the Mount some chapters earlier in Matthew, that his church would look different to the world. There he says, you, his people following him, are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. Why? Not to praise you, but to glorify your Father in heaven. Matthew 5, verses 14 and 16. Discipline is one tool in the toolbox to glorify God. Now, the footnote, as I mentioned, suggests that the sin Jesus has in mind here is an interpersonal one. But it it needn't be that it's just something that's wronged you. You could see a believer acting in a way that is against biblical teaching, that doesn't directly affect you, but you have a responsibility to help them. You can't ignore it as much as we might want to, which I know in Western Christianity, our individualism encourages us just really to turn a blind eye. Oh, well, that, that's their thing. I, I won't bother. But clearly here, Jesus is saying, no, you've got to bother. That's the whole point of being community together. Now, he doesn't give gritty details. He doesn't list 10 or 15 different cases about sin. We can discern when something's wrong from God's word is the behavior against the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness. Does it break any of the Ten Commandments? Does it fall short of the standard of the Sermon on the Mount? 
Is it opposite to living a life worthy of the calling we have in Christ? And then Paul lists practical holiness in Ephesians 4 to 5, in Colossians 3 and Romans 12. If you've seen it or if you've felt that sin, you've got to say something about it. And Jesus encourages the injured, the offended person to take the matter to the person who's caused the offense privately. You've got to go there. And the big issue in the passage is, will they listen? Did you notice that word is repeated four times? Four times. Are their ears open? Are their hearts receptive? Will they take this loving correction and complaint to heart? Will they want to repent of it and change? If they're stubborn, Jesus advises bringing more Christians in to judge the matter, probably starting with the church elders and then church members. Now, prayerful wisdom is needed to know how to apply this process in each situation. In safeguarding issues, as we face in in our world, in, in our society, It will be necessary to bring in more people immediately and follow the processes there, referring to statutory authorities as advised by the safeguarding officer. This is something churches must um, be obedient to and respond to with with due caution and, and the right process. Church investigations are not part of the process in safeguarding. And we're grateful we have a a good safeguarding, a godly safeguarding team here, headed by Laura, and involving the youth and children's ministries, and looking at not just our children's work, but vulnerable adults as well. But if it isn't a safeguarding issue, maybe someone in your life group is persistently singing, is sinning, maybe not singing, singing's fine. I know I get told off for whistling around the house. That can, that can lead to some issues. But um, singing, not a problem. But sinning, toxic gossip, breaking confidences. Well, th- there's, there's all manner of things that can be destructive within that uh, group community life. The priority is confronting that behavior. And it's doing that within the context of the group. And then given time to see if change will happen before going further. Now at this point, that most popular verse known by non-Christians, rightly so, might have popped into your heads. Which can be the trump card for shutting down all talk of discipline or judging. After all, didn't Jesus say, do not judge for you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Matthew 7 verse 1. And yes, Jesus clearly warned against self-righteous judgment. We're not to look down on other people whilst ignoring our need for forgiveness and correction. Yes, arrogant judgmentalism, seeking personal revenge is wrong. That's not why this is done. But Jesus does say there is final justice. Final justice is right in Matthew 19. It is wrong to ask people to measure up to my or your whims or standards and preferences, but it is completely appropriate for God to require his children who bear his name to reflect his character. That's why discernment and accountability are such key things in corrective discipline. And Jesus says in that warning, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
how you judge, you will be judged. So actually, in this process, there's an openness and honesty to say, I want to be accountable. And therefore, the processes are health-giving because if I'm on receipt of these processes as well, I want to be built up and challenged and changed by them. And interestingly, the reference of two or three witnesses comes from Deuteronomy 19. So there's continuity here with the good wisdom and truth that God has revealed in the Old Covenant that can be applied rightly as New Covenant people. Two or three witnesses. Moses was given this directive in settling criminal cases. You see, the witnesses present legitimate evidence. It isn't just a feeling. There's got to be concrete action, concrete evidence that is seen by more than just one person. And so when it comes to corrective discipline, Christians are to be careful. We're to be thoughtful. We're supposed to weigh the evidence. Questions should be asked of both the offended and the offender. And the aim is to give a fair hearing. It's to seek clarity before decisions are made. And we are to be considerate with it in that. The idea of innocent until proven guilty should be applied throughout, shouldn't it? These are not rushed, snapped judgments, going with our guts, but prayerfully considered. They're prayerfully corrective measures for the glory of God, for the good of both the offended person who needs to forgive and the offender who needs forgiveness and needs to live a different way. James captured the tone and attitude that should surround this whole process when he said this, let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. That should be front and center in our prayers as we look at how we help each other grow in our faith. And the second thing that this passage shows is that Jesus authorizes his local church to sort out these problems, depending on him. This is his expectation. We have his spirit, we have his word. Verse 18 is a powerful promise showing what the church does here and now matters in his kingdom. That there's a correlation, that there's an authority there. Now, that doesn't mean that church elders and its members are are an absolute authority as if their decisions become binding on God. In the same way that you think about it, a school council can't tell a head teacher and the staff to ban maths lessons as much as they might want that. God, Father, Son, and Spirit are not a genie in a lamp summoned to do our bidding. Now, Jesus' will is that Christians are accountable to church leaders and each other because they're citizens of his kingdom. And therefore, as the church depends on God's guidance, through his word, in step with his spirit, the church will come to decisions that reflect the will of God made in heaven. Can you see that partnership and dependence? Now, practically, at Grace Church, we're um, editing a grievance policy that we have written as elders. We're looking at how that um, is going to be applied in our life as a church. And we hope that it will bring guidance for both members and uh, for our leadership as to how we bring hurt and sin to light without it festering away. That's something we want our members uh, in church to take on board and recognize as a responsibility. We want to encourage an expectation that we will speak the truth in love to one another. 
that we will be forgiving each other, that we'll be desiring restoration. And I think that's the biggest challenge of Matthew 18, really, isn't it? How ready are we to hear and listen to a brother or sister we have offended? Rather than thinking about, oh, well, I've got this list of five people that need to change. Spend the time thinking, how receptive am I? Will I listen? Will I hear that rebuke? Who are we ready to welcome and even invite personal challenge and correction from? I was convicted about this um, this week as well when I just think about our elders, Jez, myself, Namdi, and Edim. I think we probably need to do a bit more of that as elders, actually invite that critique, that correction. Is there a way in which I've been uh, sinning against you? Is there a way in which uh, I've caused you to bear a grudge? making space to invite that challenge. If you're not in a life group, well, firstly, if, you're li- if you are in a life group, is that a place where this sort of correction can happen? If you're not in a life group here, where are you getting this level of accountability? Are you deliberately avoiding it? These are issues we want to take care- carefully and considered because they're issues our Lord brings to us. But what happens when sin spreads and it's more odious and painful? When people refuse to listen? When the battle line trenches are dug deep? And this is where we come in 1 Corinthians 5. Because Paul's situation there, he finds a church that he planted in Corinth, and they're in a terrible state. 1 Corinthians 5. um, In the Blue Bibles, that's on page 1147. And this is where we see when the sin spreads, there is action that's required. And I've just headed this point. If the first is show and tell, the next is remove and pray. So Paul is tackling a situation where a professing Christian could be removed from the church. The Christian man's sin is explicit there in verse 1. There is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Most commentators put that as the stepmother. And this kind of incest is forbidden in the Old Testament in Leviticus 18. And it is relatively rare, even in the morally lax Greco-Roman culture and world of that time. This is a big shock. And the big shock is the way the church have reacted to it. They weren't upset. They were proud, we're told in verse 2. Even boasting, verse 6, about their enlightened tolerance. Paul isn't physically with them, but he's heard enough to know that action is needed. They have his support, verse 3. But more importantly, verse 4, they have Jesus Christ's powerful presence as the church gathered to sort out this spiritually life-threatening issue. The action is needed, which is removing the man from fellowship. Verse 5, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, this means treating him as someone who no longer belongs to Christ's family. Now, the destruction of the flesh could refer to a physical affliction that might act as a wake-up call to bring renewed repentance. Or, as early church commentators understood, 
It is a spiritual sifting, a time of trial, one that God permitted in order to break the self-satisfied attitude that does not belong in believers who identify as new creations in Christ. Either way, either way, as God works, the in this person, the active stubborn sin needs to be cut off from the community. The stubborn sinner needs to be excluded to show what they are doing is actually cutting them off from God's blessing. It is a physical, pictorial way of saying this is putting you outside of God's blessing. It's the spiritual equivalent of being shown the red card, of being removed from the game and left to stew in your own shame on your own. Paul gives similar instructions to the Thessalonian church as well um, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 14. And I think I might have put this up on the slide as well, yeah. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. So can you see the nuance? Yes, there's a physical action that's needed, but they're not just don't have anything to do with them. They're not enemies. They're not anti-Christ. But they need restoration. Now, churches over the centuries from different denominations have practiced church discipline. Practically, they do this by not allowing the believer to take part in the Lord's Supper. At the time of the Reformation, the Church of England used to publish lists Sunday by Sunday when they were celebrating Lord's Supper. You'd have to sign up so that people knew who was coming to the Lord's table. And there would also be a list of those who were not allowed. Could you imagine that on your Twitter feed? But it's there because they're taking the word of God seriously. It's there because it is shameful to bring disrepute on Christ's name if we're in active, visible sin. It's a significant way of saying you are disobeying God's will and you're not in fellowship with us at this time. You see, the Lord's Supper is given as a gift to strengthen believers, to enliven our faith, to bring us in unity to one another. And to be cut off from this is serious judgment. It's also a way of warning and protecting the church. And verse 6 makes clear that their arrogant tolerance of sin could spread throughout the church like yeast, like leaven, and destroy it. You see, God expects his church to run after purity, to desire that. The reference to Christ as our Passover lamb that Paul makes here is such a beautiful reminder in all of this that we have a sufficient saviour. It reminds us that Jesus' atoning death liberates us from sin. It doesn't liberate or free us to just do what we want and sin as we want. Again, the writer of Hebrews said, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, Cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Chapter 9, 14 of Hebrews. Uh, sorry, chapter, yeah, chapter 9 of Hebrews. 
the blood of Christ, an unblemished sacrifice offered to cleanse our consciences so that we can serve God. You see, this is the hope and prayer that the unrepentant Christian would come to his senses like the prodigal son in Luke 15. That is what we're hoping for in discipline. It isn't to just crush someone. It is to see them come back to restoration. Um, I've read this week uh, some wonderful articles by a pastor from Zambia, Conrad Umbewe, who is actually the dad of Umwape and the father-in-law of Cheswa. He's coming, uh, we're very privileged, he's coming to visit them in Manchester, and he's kindly said he'd give us an evening. On Tuesday the 16th, he's going to be um, opening up God's word for us, we're going to host it with union, so it's lovely that we'll be able to be blessed by Conrad's ministry as well. Uh, He's doing various speaking engagements and kindly offered to um, serve us on the 16th of May. But his articles, which he published on the Gospel Coalition Africa website, were all about church discipline. And there's a fascinating part in which he shares this. What causes people to come to repentance when they are under excommunication is when their fellow church members withdraw their fellowship from them. He notes this is especially tough in Africa where the sense of Ubuntu, which is a strong social, tribal, family, and cultural ties, that that sense, that loyalty, can compromise church decisions. He carries on, a few may still want to associate with the excommunicated person. Others will relate to them, either in family or at school or the workplace, and will still have to continue associating with them, but for the purpose of that relationship and not by fraternizing with them. They will notice that the majority of members who were dear to them will have withdrawn their fellowship from them, and they will feel the pain keenly. The message will be very clear to them. They cannot dance with the devil all week and expect to be welcomed among God's people on the Lord's day or on any other day for that matter. It's stark, isn't it? It's serious. I appreciate this is very challenging teaching. And in some ways, on first hearing, it sounds very oppressive to our individualistic culture where we're suspicious of authority, where anyone correcting us or curtailing my freedom, well, that's just wrong. How dare you? But the more I've studied the Bible, the more I've reflected on my own experience over 30-plus years of, uh, of living as an active Christian, that formative and corrective discipline that I've had to go through at different points, I can see this really is good news. I'm convinced that the church needs this and the world needs it. It is definitely more relational, as we've seen in the scriptures so far, more relational, more restorative than the ranting, cancel culture, ghosting techniques, backstabbing, slagging off, trial by social media that our current society seems to have adopted just the way we do things around here. This seems far more life-giving. It's painful, but life-giving. 
Because it's also based on mutual accountability. It's applied to unrepentant, persistent, public, serious sin that damages the gospel, that damages other people, that puts unbelievers off, that gives them, understandably, the ammunition to say, well, look at you hypocrites. Look at you fakes. You talk about Jesus, you don't really mean to live for him. If a Christian is stealing from work, if they are having an adulterous affair, if your leadership here, if I am being extremely divisive or disruptive or, uh, yeah, carrying on in an affair that some of you know about, then you need to do something, don't you? We need to be confronted with God's word. To refuse to let that sin just be brushed under carpet. And the person who is hardened that way is ultimately saying that this sin that I have, what I am doing, what I am cherishing here is more valuable than Jesus, is more important than him. And at that point, we want to say, no, brother, sister, you are so wrong. Can you see the danger you are in? In a very real sense, they've cut themselves off from Christ's family. Now again, tone is everything. The priority as we come to do this, as we pray about it, is to show care. We're not trampling out every little sin and transgression. We're not like Margaret Atwell's Gilead, where we want people just to, to be like us and do what we say. We need to hear loud and clear Peter's call that love will cover over a multitude of sin. So practice forgiveness. Be forgiving. Forgive more. Love more. We need the spirit strength, as Paul says, to bear with each other. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Start living as forgiven sinners. Loved by Christ. So that we can deal with with the disruption, with our flaws, with the correction, in ways that honor and glorify him. Because you know all of this is driving, not to sit in the discipline and go, have we done that right and how uh, are we after that person in this one? No, the goal, the goal is so important. Where are we going? Restoration and rejoicing. This is where we want to be. This week on the radio, I heard about the drastic surgery. I haven't put a picture up of this because it might freak some of you out. But the drastic surgery that Ibrahim Abdul Raf has undergone over a period of many years to help him walk again. He fell during a football match and that fall and break revealed that he had bone cancer and the doctors did rotation plasty, which basically means they amputated Abraham's leg, leg and then reattached his foot sewn on backwards just below the knee in order to help him walk with his prosthetic. It is worth, if you've got the stomach for it, it is worth reading. It is marvelous to see what has happened for this young man who can now walk after three years of rehab is in a much better place. Amazing. That drastic surgery was worth it because it saved his life and it's helped him walk. Corrective church discipline is painful in a totally different way to what Ibrahim uh, experienced. But its goal is to help believers walk with Christ as we're meant to. 
Church discipline is never the final statement about a person's eternal salvation. We don't know that. We're not fallible. We're not perfect. Infallible, sorry. We're not perfect. We don't have full knowledge. That is God. But loving one another means at times with humility and patience, we will be disciplined because we want good to come from it. We want the restoration of faith. We want healthy, mature lovers of Jesus. And there is good reason to see the discipline that's being mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5 had a positive outcome, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And from verse 6, it's there on the screen. The punishment inflicted on him, the man who has grieved them all, by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, reaffirm your love for him. Anyone you forgive, I forgive. Remember the parable. There's a parable just before this teaching on discipline in Matthew 18. It's there for a reason. It's the parable of the lost wandering sheep. And it's fascinating that before Jesus teaches on discipline, he has this parable. Listen to these verses from Matthew 18, 12 to 14. If he, the owner, finds this wandering sheep, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than the 99 that didn't wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones, Jesus' followers, should perish. We have a great shepherd. Discipline is part of the tools he gives us so that sheep that are wandering come back, so that there's rejoicing in heaven, that the Father's will is done, that none of the little ones are lost. The shepherd who bore the punishment for our sin, who was wounded for our iniquity, is the Savior we can trust to discipline us because in his loving hands, discipline leads to restoration it leads to rejoicing. It leads to Christ's glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you love us too much not to discipline, not to disciple us. Father, please, by your Holy Spirit, would you give us wisdom to know how to apply your loving and good discipline to our life as a church family here at Grace Church? Lord, we are so dependent on your loving salvation, on your grace. Would you make us a light that shines bright in a world in need of your truth, in need of Christ's salvation? Holy Spirit, give us humility, gentleness, patience to call out the willful, harmful sin that so easily entangles us. Lord, would that work start with me? Give us love to bear with one another. Give us a desire to help change each other to reflect more of your glory. And Jesus, I pray that your will would always be done here at Grace Church Manchester for your glory. Amen.